Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, even in the story we're looking at today are two men <clears throat> unable to feel, unable to move. We pray, O oh Lord, in the same way that there would be nothing in our hearts that would keep us from you this day. Don't let it be that our eyes fail to see. Don't let it be that our ears fail to hear. Don't let it be that we fail to feel what you want us to feel. We pray instead that by your own spirit, you would awaken all of us to you and bring all our life alive to you. We ask that you would do this for Christ's name. We pray, amen. We're going to continue in our preaching through the gospel according to Mark. And when we last left off, if you remember, Jesus had come into the town of Capernaum. He had taught in the morning at the synagogue. Everyone was amazed at his authority. He cast out a demon. He stayed late into the night in that town, healing all the sick. The entire city showed up at the front door. The next morning, he departed to go pray. Everyone was looking for him, is what the disciples said. Everyone is here. Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus responded to that by saying, let us leave this town so that I may go to the other towns that I may preach, for that is why I came. Right? He said, that's why I've come. I've come to preach, that is, to announce the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. This is why I came. And that week we discovered the priority of the king who had come to establish his kingdom was first not to give us temporary physical healing, but first to give us permanent, eternal, spiritual healing. Not that he does not care about the body, but that he wanted to make sure that first things were first. We see that again today, the priority of the king in these two scenes of healing that we're going to look at in the passage we're looking at. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me. This is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 1, the passage you just heard read, verses 40 to chapter 2, verses 12. You can just leave that open. That's where we'll be. Mark chapter 1, verses 40, all the way to 2, verse 12. And we'll see as Jesus deals with both a leper and a paralytic. And as he deals with both, here's what I want you to hear. You're going to see that Jesus is God who is powerful enough and compassionate enough to cleanse us and forgive us. I don't want you to miss that because that's the big idea. This is what I don't want you to miss. Jesus is God who is powerful enough and compassionate enough to cleanse us and forgive us. You'll see that first in the leper. Look at verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, some have said, commentators, preachers have said, that among all of Jesus' healing miracles, his healing of the lepers is the greatest of them all. That out of all the miracles Jesus did in his healing, the healing of lepers, like the one here, is different. Different than when he made a blind eye see or a deaf ear hear. Different than when he made a lame man walk. There was something about the healing of the leper that was greater than them all. And I think if you understand some of the background of this disease in particular, you might get why people would say that. 
You see, in that day, leprosy wasn't just a physical disease. It wasn't like any other disease. It wasn't just a regular other kind of sickness. In fact, you can see in this man's words himself why this disease was different. Do you notice his request? What does he ask? If you will, you can what? Make me clean. That's odd, isn't it? If you will, you can make me clean. It's odd that he's not asking, you can heal me. He's asking, you can clean me. And if you take that in, that's odd, because if you have a friend who's sick, or if you're sick, if you know someone who has cancer, if you've prayed for someone who's in pain, or has heart disease, or some problem, I doubt you have ever asked, Lord, would you cleanse my friend with cancer? You don't pray that. You pray, Lord, heal this son of ours. Heal this brother of ours. But here, this man has not asked for healing alone. He has said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Leprosy was different. Different than blindness. Different than deafness. Different than lameness. Different than cancer. It was different because leprosy wasn't just this physical problem. Leprosy carried with it a social problem, a spiritual problem. In the Old Testament, leprosy was often connected with God's judgment. For example, there's this woman named Miriam, Moses' sister. At one time, she talked smack about her brother. God lit her up with leprosy. I mean, it was a sign, and everybody knew why Miriam suddenly had leprosy. This was God's judgment. And since it came from God, it was known only God could take leprosy away. Leprosy couldn't be cured with a little bit of medicine and some rest and, and good care. This came from God. Only God can remove it. In fact, the few times leprosy is removed in the Old Testament, every time God is supernaturally involved. If leprosy should be removed, God has to get involved. In fact, that's why rabbis back then would say to cure leprosy was as difficult as raising the dead. Meaning you'd have an easier time calling someone out of a grave than curing a leper. And, and one of the reasons is because to have leprosy was essentially to be the walking dead. It was to be a living corpse. I mean, out of all the things that could come down on you, the one thing you did not want was to become a leper. You, you would rather die. And I kid you not. You would rather be dead than to live as a leper. In fact, if you read passages like Leviticus 13, 14 in the Old Testament, you'll see some of the rules surrounded being a leper. For example, if you were a leper, you had to tear your clothes. You had to walk around unkempt all the time. You had to let your hair grow loose and hang. You had to wear a covering over your lips and down. And wherever you went, you had to shout, Unclean! Unclean! Because you were a walking contamination. You were a walking contagion. And all the clean people needed to be warned of your coming. Because if they got within 50 paces of you, they risked becoming defiled by your very presence. So you were just a walking contamination unkept, looking as horrible as possible, screaming out unclean, and if you did come down with leprosy, the rules were you lived outside the camp. You lived away from the community. To be a leper then 
was to be cut off from society, removed from friends and family, ripped out of any potential occupation, and to be separated from the worshiping community. It's one commentator who said, to be a leper was to essentially be without hope and without God in the world. To be without hope and without God in the world. That, by the way, is exactly how the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians in the second chapter, will describe all humanity apart from God, he says, is essentially to be without hope and without God in the world. That's how Paul describes all humanity that lives apart from God as being without hope and without God in the world. And if you can get that, the light bulbs start to go off and you begin to see leprosy is physically what all of us are spiritually. That's why there's all these rules. It was to serve as a picture that what the leper is physically is what you are. You are spiritually, what I am spiritually. When you see Jesus interacting with the leper, this is not some irrelevant passage of some peculiar story that happened in his ministry. This is incredibly relevant to us all because this is the state we find ourselves in. This man lived in a state of defilement. He struggled with isolation and alienation and separation and condemnation. And if you have ever, hear me, struggled with guilt, if you've ever felt the pain of shame, if you've ever wrestled with the thought that if anyone knew what you were just under the surface, if God or others saw you as you really were, knew what you have really done, heard what you had really said, saw what you had really thought, if anyone got past the surface to know who you really were, you know in your soul you would be shouting, unclean. I am unclean. That's the state you find yourself in. That if you've ever been honest enough with yourself to know who you are, in there, and I know we hide well. We hide, we've got stuff to cover the surface. You've got a good job that people can look at or a good marriage that people can look at or a good reputation that people can look at or good education. You've got all of that stuff. Once you get past the surface, if they saw you for who you really were and knew you all the way to the depths, alienation and isolation and condemnation and separation, that is the state you'd find yourself in. That's this man. You can imagine then how desperate this man is. You can imagine how desperate this man is that he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. Jesus of Nazareth, and he's, he's either seen Jesus of Nazareth or heard what Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth can do, and he needs somebody. He needs somebody not just to heal him, but to fix the isolation and the separation and the condemnation and the alienation. He needs somebody that can restore him and give him back his life. He needs this. And so he is going to come to Jesus. And Mark, in the way he says it, tells you how desperate this man is. He came to Jesus. You hear, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, you should know how crazy that is. 
How scandalous that is. This man has broken every rule. He has risked everything. He is not allowed to be within 50 paces of somebody. He is supposed to shout unclean because just his presence, contact with him would mean defilement for everybody. He breaks every rule. He risks everything. Nothing will hold him back. And in this desperate place, he comes to Jesus. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. Now, maybe he's being polite. If, if you would be so kind, you could make me clean. Or maybe he's wrestling in that request with what you and I perhaps wrestle with. Maybe you can relate with him because his request seems to suggest, I have no doubt that you can, I'm just not sure if you will. If you can relate to that, you know what that question is. This man has no doubt about Jesus' power. He's just not yet convinced about Jesus' desire, compassion, willingness. He has no question that if Jesus wills, he can make me clean. I have no doubt in your ability. I have no doubt in your power I'm just not sure if you will. If you will, you can make me clean. If what the man did was shocking in coming up to Jesus, then how Jesus responds is even more shocking. Verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Perhaps you're seeing what Mark wants us to see, that Jesus is God who is both powerful enough and compassionate enough to cleanse us. Moved with pity, Mark says. Moved with pity. A word that preachers note is the same word that's used when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. If you know that story, Jesus tells the story about a boy who wasted his father's wealth on wine and women. He's sitting in the pigsty. His clothes are torn. He's coming back to the father defiled and unclean. And when the father sees him, he is moved with compassion. And he sprints down the hill and he embraces his son. That's the phrase here. Moved with pity. Sinner at Seven Mile Road. Is it not good news to your heart to hear that? That when you think of how the Lord looks at you. Hear me. When he looks at you. He who knows past the surface. To the depths of who you are. Whom you cannot hide from who knows everything you've ever done and everything you've ever thought and everything you've ever said. And, and when you picture how that God looks at you, if I were to ask you, when God looks at you right now, what does His face look like? When God brings you in view, thinks about you, what does His face look like? Is it not good news to hear that when Jesus saw this man in his filth, with torn clothes and hair loose, a 
something to cover him, disease that had ravaged his whole body. In his filth, uncleaned and defiled, Jesus was moved with pity. That the emotion that welled up in the heart of Jesus at the sight of him was compassion. Not disdain. Not hatred. Not anger boiling up in his heart, but pity. Compassion welled up in his heart. And in that compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him, Mark says. That is that Jesus touched the untouchable. That Jesus doesn't recoil and does not reject, but reaches out for this man and touches him. He touches him. And I know if you've read through the passage or thought of it even once, that has stood out to you, hasn't it? He touches him. Because you know he didn't need to do that. Surely he could have spoken, be clean. The same God who said, let there be light, and light showed up, could have easily said, be clean. And the man would have been clean. In fact, no, Jesus could have just thought it. That's happened in the gospel accounts. He's talking to a man, he says, when you go home, everything will be all right. But for this man, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. Don't you wonder, of course you do, how long had it been? How long had it been since someone did that? And I, I try to picture, how did he do it? Did he, did he put his hand on his shoulder? Did he put his hand on his forehead? Did he cup his face, look him in the eye and say, I will be clean? How long had it been since someone, someone from the clean population had ever come close enough, within 50 paces, nay, even close enough to reach out and touch this man? I will be clean. And immediately, Mark says, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Isn't that amazing? That it's not in touching him that Jesus of Nazareth is now polluted and defiled, but the leper is made clean. Anyone else touches, he becomes unclean. But when Jesus of Nazareth touched him, Jesus didn't get polluted. Instead, this man got clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he became clean. And what a picture that is. Instantaneously. As in not in a process, not over time, not gradually with enough good work. Instantaneously, this man went from unclean to clean. And what a picture that is of the gospel work of Jesus. That if you come to Jesus and you come defiled and full of shame and unclean, it will not be that over time... Maybe you'll be transformed. Maybe you'll go from the status of unclean to clean. That's not how the gospel works. Human religion will tell you, you better work hard now. Human religion will say, with good works, you better try and scrub those stains away. And the gospel comes and says, all the scrubbing in the world, all the church services in the world, all the good deeds in the world can't move you. It will happen instantaneously or it will not happen at all. For all who come to Jesus, desperate in faith in this Jesus, 
you go in that moment from unclean to clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him. This is what Jesus wants to do for you today. What he did for that leper's body is what Jesus wants to do for your soul today. And so it's right from this text for me to ask you, have you been cleansed? Have you been cleansed by Jesus Christ? The Savior's face turns dramatically. It's almost like there's two emotions in this story. One is moved with pity, and then verse 43, you wonder what his face looked like then. Because after the man is cleansed, in verse 43, it says, and Jesus sternly charged him. You wonder now, did he grab his face and says, listen to me. Sternly charged him and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof for them. Verse 45, here's how the man responded. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus says, listen, I want you to go show yourself to the priests. If you keep reading Leviticus 13, 14, there was all these rules about the sacrifices you had to order, offer so that you could be permitted to re-enter society. You needed the priest to give you a clean bill of health so that you could re-enter society. So he says, go show yourself to the priest. And you have to wonder, I mean, when he gets to Jerusalem and he shows himself to the priests, they probably had to dust off the manual to go, what do you do when lepers get cleaned again? I mean, when did a leper get cleaned? They hadn't done that before. And this would be a proof to them so that they'd have to wonder, wait, if a leper in Israel just got cleaned and only God cleans lepers and Jesus of Nazareth just cleaned a leper, what does that mean? Whatever the case, he says, go show yourself to the priest and then don't say anything to anyone. I, I find this funny. It's, you've already seen in Mark, Jesus will tell a demon don't say anything and the demon will obey, but this guy won't. I mean, even the demons will obey him, but we don't. It, this guy becomes the best, worst evangelist ever, right? My, my grandmother, when she used to live with us, she used to just talk about kids and our nature as human beings. He'd say, you, you tell a kid, don't touch, they're going to touch. You tell them to touch, they won't touch. And she'd say, it's not your fault, it began in the garden, right? I, all the trees you can eat, you don't want to eat those trees. That tree you can't eat, that's the tree you want to eat. That's us. Jesus tells us, tell everybody in the world, we don't tell anybody. Tells this one guy, don't tell anybody, he tells everybody. Now, Part of you feels for the guy. I mean, how was he supposed to keep this command? How was he supposed to get home? Uh, go back home, back to his village, back to his town, whatever it was. And people were looking at him going, John, you look fantastic. What, what if, is, is it oil of olay? What have you been doing, right? Whatever it is, keep doing it. It's working. And, and this man has to do what? Go, oh, I want to tell you, but... No, he goes, I, I got to tell you, Jesus of Nazareth, he touched me and I became clean. But you cannot dismiss this man's disobedience. You know why? Because it impacts Jesus. Do you see at the end of 45, he began to talk freely about it, spread the news so that Jesus 
could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. You can't dismiss it because this man's disobedience hindered the ministry that Jesus intended to do in the towns of Galilee. But let's go deeper than that. Because this man's disobedience drove Jesus out where? Into the desolate place. Do you see what's just happened? Jesus has just traded places with the leper. The leper was the one who was out in the desolate place. The leper was the one cut off from people who couldn't go where he wanted to go. The one who was alienated and isolated and separated. And yet this man came to Jesus and he became clean. And now Jesus is isolated and separated and alienated in the desolate place. It's just part of the story, but is that not a foreshadow and a picture of what the entire Christian message is about? Is that not a picture of what the whole Christian gospel is? We were out, and he was in, and he was pushed out so that we might be brought in. We were unclean. He made us clean, and he was cleaned and treated as one who was unclean. This is the exchange that will happen at the cross. We come with sin. He comes perfect. He leaves with our sin. We leave perfect. This is the gospel. God will take the place of the leper. God will take the place of the sinner. And if you don't see it by now, Mark wants to shout to us, Jesus is powerful enough and compassionate enough to cleanse us. Well, news spreads. Jesus is forced into the desolate places. A few days later, Jesus comes back to Capernaum. This is 2 verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to him. So Jesus comes back to Capernaum. You remember, this is where he was in the synagogue. He healed people. He left to preach. Heals this leper, comes back to Capernaum, and everyone finds out he's at home. Not sure whose home this was. When he was last at Capernaum, he went to Peter and Andrew's home. Remember, and he healed the mother-in-law, and he spent the day there. So maybe that's his home base. But he comes home, and now everyone finds out, and the crowds press in again. As we were talking about this in our smaller community, our GCM, someone said maybe it was the people who got left hanging the first time. They go, this time we're not missing him. So they all jam into the house, and everybody comes, and there's the crowds again. We've noticed this in Mark's account. The crowds are this repeated feature. The crowds always show up. And yet, what you see is Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He'll teach and preach to the crowds. He'll do miracles for the crowds. But ultimately, the crowds are not seen repenting and believing in the gospel. The crowds don't always translate into success in Jesus' ministry because the crowds don't always translate into disciples. The crowds love to sort of waver ambivalently about Jesus. They're intrigued by him. They're interested in him but never enough to press all the way in, take up their cross and follow him. That whatever the cost, they want Jesus and not just the stuff that comes from his hands. 
And so often the crowds are seen even as an obstacle for the people who really do want Jesus. That's what you see here. There's no room, not even at the door. But there are some men who will not stop till they get to Jesus. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I mean, we just finished seeing the desperation of the leper. No rules were going to stop him. No risk was too great. He was not going to let anything stop him from getting to Jesus. And here again, here are these men with this paralyzed friend of theirs, and nothing is going to stop them. Not some crowds, not a house, not even the roof. Jesus' ministry is going to go through the roof. I thought that was very clever, by the way. And, and here, I want you to picture this scene. Jesus inside the house teaching. And all of a sudden, you've got this roof, maybe made of some wood and some straw and some mud. All of a sudden, while he's teaching, you hear four men walking above. You, you hear them beginning to dig out. I mean, can you imagine that? Some of you get distracted if a baby cries here. Jesus is speaking in the house, and all of a sudden, dirt starts to fall on them. There's a hole, and a head pops in. And then they put down this bed on which the man lays. The leper came and his approach was shocking. Jesus' response was shocking. Well, here again, the approach these men take are shocking. Jesus' response will likewise be shocking. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now picture that for a second. Can you imagine what those four men and what the paralyzed man was thinking? It'd be like if you, if you went to a doctor with a broken arm and he says, all your wrongdoings are pardoned. You'd go, gee, thanks, doc, but I, I've, I've, I've got a broken arm. I've got, I've got something much bigger than that. I have a much bigger problem for you to deal with. And it's almost as if Jesus was trying to show them, I am dealing with the bigger problem. I am dealing with the bigger problem. Son, the biggest problem in your life is not the paralysis of your body, but of your soul. Son, the biggest problem in your life is that your soul is lame, crippled, laid down with sin and unable to move. I am dealing with the biggest problem in your life. And for a second time in Capernaum, the king who could heal the blind and cure the deaf and give talk to the dumb, the king who could make the lame walk, shows that while he is careful to do all those things, his priority is not temporal physical healing, but an eternal and permanent spiritual one. I'm sure this man and his friends came to Jesus thinking, if I could just walk, that's the biggest need of my life. If I could just walk, if I could run and leap and not be confined to this bed, the, the greatest thing, my life would be complete if I could just walk. And hear me, friend, you've got your own version of that. What I need more than anything else is if I, if I could just pass this exam, 
get through these boards, get into that college, if I could just get this profession or that promotion, if I could just have this sickness healed, or if I could just get into that relationship, or if I could just get married, or if I could just have my marriage fixed, or any number of things. And listen, God cares about all of them, but you have a greater need. A need for your sins to be forgiven. And so Jesus, seeing the faith of these men, says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And before we move on from there, would you take that in for a second? Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins. I, I want you to just breathe that in for a second. Because Jesus wasn't looking and saying, I have come to forgive sins in general. Or I have come to redeem the world of its sins. Jesus looked at this man and said, your sins. I don't know that if there's anything greater you could hear than for Jesus to look at you and say, your sins. Meaning, the ones that are distinctive to you. The ones that are not a part of anyone else's story. Your sins. I mean... Daniel, your sins are forgiven. Asa, your sins are forgiven. Wouldn't you pause long enough to put your name in front of that and hear the Savior, see your greatest need, look at you, call you by name, and say, your sins, the ones you committed, the ones that are particular to your story, the ones that haunt you and threaten to defile you and shame you and fill you with guilt, the ones you and I know about, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you hear this story before the question was, we know he has the power, but does he have the compassion? If you will, you can make me clean. We know you have the power, but do you have the compassion? Now it's almost the opposite, which is, that was very compassionate of you, Jesus, to say. But do you have the power to say what you just said? That, that was very kind of you, Jesus. That was very compassionate. But, but do you have the power to actually do what you just said? At least that's what the scribes were thinking. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's their question. They're going, Jesus, what you said is very compassionate. It's very kind to say your sins are forgiven. But, but why would you say that? Do you have the power to actually live up to that? And, and listen, they're wrong, but they're sort of right. They're sort of right. If, if Jordan punched Ryan in the face, and Ryan's face, I'm sorry, buddy, is a bloody mess, and I walk up to Jordan and I say, Jordan, I forgive you. It's done. You don't have to worry about it anymore. After Ryan has cleaned up, Ryan would come and go, who are you to say that? He punched me in the face. You see that? If person A owes person B $1,000, and I go up to person A and I say, don't worry about it. Your debt is forgiven. It's canceled. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You go, who are you to do that? And everybody knows God, only God can forgive sin. Only God is the one sinned at. And, and they know what Jesus is claiming then. 
Jesus is essentially coming with the sentence and saying, I'm the one you've been sinning against. And therefore, I'm the one that can forgive you. To which they go, blasphemy. Because they know exactly what Jesus is claiming. Who he's claiming to be. A God who is compassionate enough and powerful enough to cleanse us and forgive us of sin. Jesus is claiming to have the authority to do this. And if you'll notice, this is the second showdown now in Capernaum between Jesus and the scribes. The first time it was, who is this that teaches with this kind of authority and not like the scribes? And now again, it's who is this that has authority to forgive sins on earth is what the scribes are beginning to ask. And it's almost as if Mark is beginning to introduce to you, listen, Jesus is getting opposition. And the surprising thing is, We've seen him be opposed. He was opposed by the devil in the desert. He was opposed by demons. But now the religious leaders are opposing him. I mean, you weren't shocked when the devil opposed him or the demons opposed him, but Mark is setting up for us the religious establishment is opposing him. And so, verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? I, I tell you, it must have been so hard to be around Jesus because this guy was blowing you up for your thoughts, right? I mean, I, I'd imagine the scribes go, we, we didn't say anything. And he goes, no, no, I heard what you thought. And you go, what? That's right, I heard what you thought. Perceiving in his spirit what they said, he said to them, why do you question these things? Verse 9, which is easier to say? To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus says to them, listen, which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And you sort of ponder. And people have pondered for a long time. Which, which is easier? Which is easier? What's the answer to this question? On the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody could know. Nobody knows if that happened. And so it's actually much harder to say rise, get up and walk because now you put yourself out there. If that doesn't happen... Everyone knows you're full of it. So it's much harder to say that. And so, he says, so that you may know that just like God in heaven has authority to forgive sins, now the Son of Man on earth has authority to forgive sins. I say to him, rise, get up, and he does immediately. On the other hand, on the other hand, the truth is it will also be much harder, much harder, to actually forgive this man's sins. And in that way, it's almost as if Jesus wants you to know, I'm not just a trick pony. I'm not a miracle worker who can pull some rabbits out of a hat. I have come to do the much harder work, which is to forgive this man's sin. And to forgive this man's sin, I will essentially trade places with him. To forgive this man's sin he and I will trade places because it will be me who will be crippled and laid down with sin onto a cross and I will not get up. And I will be laid there 
I will be treated like a sinner so that I can say to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark is saying to us this morning, in these two stories, these are not random, irrelevant healing miracles. Mark is saying to us, your greatest need this morning is to be cleansed of your defilement and forgiven of your sins. Your greatest single need this morning is to be cleansed of your defilement and forgiven of your sins. And Mark says, through no work of your own, through no scrubbing, instantaneously, immediately, you can go from unclean to clean, from lame to walking, from sinner to forgiven. You can do that because you need to be cleansed and forgiven, but thanks be to God. Jesus is God who is powerful enough and compassionate enough to cleanse us and forgive us of our sins. Let's pray together.